0: Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, Acts 28. This is the 47th and final sermon series, a sermon in the series from the book of Acts. And I've never preached a 47 sermon series before, and so I was wondering if I'd gone too long. And so I looked up some of the other preachers that I respect and how many sermons they had in the book of Acts, and Most of them were in the 60s. So I thought, well, you guys are getting uh, short-changed here. We should extend this a little while longer. But alas, this is the last one from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. Let's hear now from Acts 28 and be reminded that it is the Bible which is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. If we want to know how to live, what to believe, what to know about the things happening in this world, we must know God's word. And so I invite you now to follow along as I read the word of Almighty God. Starting in Acts 28, we'll read the entire chapter. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. and entertained us hospitably for 3 days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put us on board. They put on board whatever we needed. After 3 months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in it at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a, a, a circuit and arrived at Regium. And, f- and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Patoli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there When they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed from Paul. They departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray and ask his guidance in understanding it. Spirit, as we consider the close of this book, we ask that you would guide our understanding of its message. That we would see, here your hand at work, accomplishing your purposes for the glory of Jesus' name. It's in that name and in that hope and for that reason that we pray. Amen. The outline that I've provided in the bulletin offers three main bullet points. The end of the journey... Him getting to Rome, the end of the earth, and the end of the work. And I'd like us to take a look at the end of the journey, the the end of the earth, and the end of the work, as we consider the end of the book of Acts. In some ways, this opens with a continuation of last week's account. You'll, You'll recall that they were... Uh, 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 Shipwreck! They were tossed on the seas. Uh, it was an intense uh, couple of weeks of battling the weather. They had sailed a little too late in the season. They had uh, 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 gambled with the weather and lost and they were in dire straits. And when we saw them at the close of last week in Acts 27, they were jumping overboard from a ship that was breaking up and they were swimming in the dark for the beach. And this passage opens with them being found on the beach. And in the daylight, as people come out and see that, hey, we went to bed last night and there was nobody out here, and now there are 276. And the locals begin to gather, they make a fire, and they begin to communicate with the the, the shipwrecked um, people and learn what's going on. And Paul and Luke and the others learn that they're on Malta. Malta is an island in the Mediterranean. Uh, about 70-some-odd miles, sorry, sorry, like 60 miles south of Sicily. So you can picture Italy, the boot of Italy. Sicily's the little odd-shaped soccer ball right off the toe of the boot. And just below that is this little tiny island of Malta, about 8 miles wide and about 18 miles long. It's not a huge island. But they found it in the dark, and God saved them there. And so in some, one sense, this is the conclusion of that tale, and yet it feels very different. All of the tension, all of the drama, the uncertainty, are they going to make it, are they not going to make it, kind of feels like it's behind us. And that now they are on uh, a solid footing, both literally and uh, uh, figuratively speaking. And so we see that they welcomed us all. Um, hospitality was a kind of a universal courtesy in the ancient world. Um, you were you, you kind of expected to be hospitable. Um, there were not much in the way of inns and hotels. There was no, you know, a Holiday Inn Express was not going to be at every off-ramp in the ancient world. And so you generally provided um, some hospi- hospitality and, and, and you were generally hospitable in the ancient Mediterranean world. And we see that here. We also see that they welcomed us all. Luke is... Uh, uh, Hinting at what's about to come, he's saying, listen, despite the soldiers, despite the chains on Paul, nevertheless, they welcomed him. They welcomed us all. It wasn't that they welcomed 275 of us and they looked askance at Paul, but rather they welcomed us all. What's the significance of that? Well, we're about to see the superstition of these people. Yes, he might be in chains. Yes, he might be under guard, but come on—the gods have clearly spared him. If he was guilty, he'd have drowned in the shipwreck. And so they welcomed us all. You heard the expression of somebody being snake bit—somebody being uh, 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 being having such bad luck, having such misfortune that it doesn't seem to matter what they do; it works out badly. Amos makes a reference to this talks about the idea of somebody who who uh, uh, runs from a bear tries to escape a bear they run into their house they slam the door they breathe a sigh of relief they've gotten home from the, they've escaped the bear and they rest against the wall of their house and get bit by a snake they didn't see there You know, it's just that kind of situation. Well, that's Paul, what happens here. So they're building this fire. Paul is not one to sit around and let other people do the work. He's not one to say, well, you know, I'm the preacher. You go build the fire over there. He pitches in, he grabs some sticks, and he throws it on the fire. And when the heat hits the sticks, a viper looks to escape. And Paul's arm is the nearest thing, and the viper latches on. Now, many have pointed out the problem with this. They say, well, listen... This shows that the book of Acts is fiction, for there are no vipers, there are no venomous snakes on Malta. Well, by that logic, then there were never any uh, uh, passenger pigeons in North America. Remember the account in the mid-1800s? Passenger pigeons were so numerous, they numbered at least 800 million and maybe over a billion birds their flocks would migrate and black out the sun for hours at a time they would they would come overhead and if they flew low their wings were deafening as recorded in 1855 in fact one man records how he couldn't even talk to the man in the tent next to him because of the deafening sound of those pigeons by 1914 the last known passenger pigeon died they are extinct so if we are going to say that you know, well, there are no passenger pigeons in America today, clearly there never were any in America. Just because there are no vipers today on Malta does not mean there were not 2,000 years ago. Clearly the people recognize it, the locals, and, and Luke makes a reference there to the, to the, the natives. Um, the literal word there in the Greek is the barbaroi, from which we get our word uh, barbarian. But... You can't take a modern meaning and read it back into an ancient text. By barbarian today, we mean certain things. By barbaroi or barbarian then, Luke just meant they didn't speak Greek. They didn't know Greek. That was the mere definition of a barbarian back then. By that standard, most of us are barbarians. We don't speak Greek either. The locals recognized this viper. They recognized it as a venomous viper, and they waited for Paul to drop over dead. And he doesn't. He doesn't even swell up. He merely shakes it off and goes on about his business. And the people change their tune from deciding that he was guilty. Notice there the J on justice in most of your translations is properly capitalized. And that's because uh, they are referencing their goddess. Um, who, who was responsible for justice. And they're saying, oh, yeah, he escaped the sea, we were, but we were wrong about him. He really is doomed to die, and now he's going to. Justice has taken care of it. But he does not die. And so they begin to th- say, oh, he must be a god. He must be a, a, a deity. And that, of course, is not the case either. And we've seen that before. Remember back in uh, 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 Acts 14 in Lystra, um, Paul and Barnabas were regarded as uh, 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 Hermes and Zeus, respectively, and you know, because of the miracles they performed. And here we see that same sort of thing going on. Luke doesn't record this time that there was any attempt to worship him. Um, uh, presumably we're supposed to know at this point that Paul quickly put that to rest, don't bow to me, don't worship me I am not a god, Luke just skips right over all of that knowing that we'll understand that it's there by the way, one of the realities of writing in the ancient world, you ever had that experience of, I I don't read e-books but I'm going to guess this is a different experience in an e-book, but I know when I'm reading a novel you know, whatever's happening in the story, I know it must be resolving quickly because, well, there are only a couple of pages left Right? I know the end must be near because the book's getting thin. If you read e novels, you have to tell me. Maybe you don't have that same experience. You can't tell when the end of it's coming on an e novel. That'd be an interesting experience. But anyway, uh, Luke is writing and he knows it's coming to an end. Why? He's running out of scroll. It's interesting, the book of Acts is almost exactly the length of what fits on the maximum length of an ancient scroll. As are the, uh, some of the other longer books of the New Testament, he knows that his story is coming to an end. We already he knows that we know that Paul's not about to accept worship, and so he skips over that and bother, doesn't bother to tell us that. Nevertheless, we see the evolution of what's happening there on Malta. That uh, 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 they're invited into the home of the of the principal man of the island. Some debate: is he the wealthiest man on the island? Is he the governor of the island? Not a hundred percent clear what is meant by that. Regardless, he's a man of influence and power. His name is Publius, um, common name back then. It was a, a, a highly respected name, um, uh, 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 and he, he invites them into their home. His father uh, is suffering with uh, dysentery and fever, what is uh, commonly known as Malta fever or Mediterranean fever. Um, it's a uh, brusa, uh, bruce. Uh, uh, bruce, uh, bruce I do. I promise, I swear. I practice these things. Uh, brucellosis, brucellosis. There we go. Brucellosis. Um, it's a bacterium uh, from unpasteurized goat's milk or sheep's milk. That's probably what he's suffering with there. Paul is able to heal him, and as a result, um, everyone who is sick on the island comes and uh, wants to be healed. We've seen this sort of thing before. We remember this even with Jesus when he would perform a miracle and everybody would flock to him to get more miracles. We've seen this earlier with Paul's ministry and now we see it here. It does give us some insight, by the way. One of the things we ought to consider when we're wondering, has a miracle occurred in our world, in our setting? Has a miracle occurred? Well, let's be reminded of the point of miracles. The function of miracles was to establish God's messenger in a time when it wasn't otherwise clear. When God made himself known through a new messenger, he often provided miracles. Moses. Brought a new form of revelation and miracles, signs and wonders accompanied him. Elijah brought a time, Elijah and Elisha brought times of new revelation from God, and signs and wonders accompanied them. Jesus and the apostles brought new revelation from God, and signs and wonders accompanied them. Miracles function to convince the unbeliever that this person is God's messenger. It is one of the reasons that I, I am open to the possibility that in places where the word of God is not established as authoritative, miracles might yet occur. God might still use that to establish his word in these places. How does the unbeliever respond? Here the unbeliever responded positively. They saw it as a miracle. In if someone's testifying to you that they are convinced they saw a miracle, ask yourself, what are the skeptics around? Because that's the point of miracles, is to convince the skeptic. The unbelievers here recognize the authority and the power of Paul. You know what's interesting? Having established his authority as God's messenger, there's no record of him preaching. Not even in passing does Luke say and he taught the gospel, and many believed. It's an interesting omission for Luke to make. Even with the end of the scroll being near, it's stunning. He could have fitted in in just a few words. What's going on? In all likelihood, it goes back to that word barbaroi, that they did not know the language. They did not know Greek and the shipwrecked people did not know the local language. That they were, their ability to communicate is extremely limited. Given that they're all in the Roman world, they probably all knew at least some rudimentary Latin, and that is probably how they've been communicating. But it may well be that Paul was not equipped to preach in Latin, or that they were not equipped to, to really listen to that kind of complexity in Latin. And so the communication seems limited. And it is a reminder to us that the work to which we are called will often not go as swimmingly as we sometimes perceive it happening in the New Testament. We think that we can just roll into any new town and preach like Paul preached and have all these converts like Paul had, but we're reminded that even here, Paul had the practical limitations of things like language. That even the great apostle Paul wanted to, to communicate more in Malta, would have had to spend time, learn the language, learn how to connect to these people. The end of the journey, or at least of the, of the frightening journey, of the uh, uh, terrible journey, comes to an end on Malta. It ends with God's grace to these people through strangers on Malta. And it ends with a reminder that God's providence works in strange and unexpected ways. That God will take care of his people through methods that we can never anticipate. When the journey began, Paul was telling everybody, we're going to be saved, we're all going to get there. But not even Paul could have imagined that it would have included a a bonfire on Malta. Snakebite, Mediterranean fever, and a bunch of people who didn't speak his language. God's ways are strange ways. And they are ways not like we're accustomed to. The journey ends, at least the scary part of it, there on Malta. And now we read how they transition into the end of the earth, how they arrive in Rome. Luke makes a note of them heading out on a ship with the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. It is a reminder that Luke was an eyewitness, that these details do not come except through eyewitnesses. They land in Syracuse. The map is there in the bulletin. Syracuse is on the southern part of the east coast of Sicily. And they land there. Back then, it was a major port for ships coming from the eastern Mediterranean. Um, It was a major shipbuilding port region back then. Today, it's a relatively small tourist town. Regium, uh, the next stop is uh, on the tip of the boot. You can picture Italy, the very tip of the boat, boot, the very toe, that which would be uh, uh, squashed when it kicks Sicily. That's where Regium is located, and they spend a few days there. They Actually, they spend just one day there. They get an unexpected south wind. So you've got Sicily here and the tip of the boot here, and there's this narrow little band of water, and they need, there's not a lot of room to tack back and forth. They need a favorable wind. They put in at regium to wait for it, and they get that south wind the very next day that's going to take them right up that channel. And so they jump back on, boat, on board and get to sea and take advantage of that wind, spending just the one day in regium. They arrive at Patoli. Patoli is just outside of modern-day Naples. And it was back then the most common point of entry, the landing port, for those coming to Rome from the eastern Mediterranean world. It's a very calm, very bustling port city. It was a common place to put in. It was not known for its uh, 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 comfort. It was not known for its... Um, uh, 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 Hospitality, it was not a vacation destination. It was a place of rough and rugged seafaring people. And so the accommodations there were not going to be particularly pleasant. It's one of the reasons that Luke makes the comment about the brothers hosting them. He is greatly relieved that they do not have to stay at one of the local inns, but are able to find a home among Christian brothers There has been a lot of debate over the years among Bible scholars about these brothers and who they are and where they've come from. Some have said, well, they are Jews. Paul regularly, in fact, a few verses later here, we're going to see Paul refer, uh, right there in verse 17, Paul refers to Jews as his brothers. That's appropriate. He is himself a Jew. That is completely appropriate. But the only time we see brothers used of Jews in the book of Acts is when a Jew is speaking. And that's not the case here. Luke is writing. Luke is a Gentile. He would not have referred to uh, Jews as brothers. And so what we have here is an, a, a realization that there were Christians already in Putoli. There was a church there. And this should not be surprising. For the book of Romans, the letter to the uh, church in Rome was written some three years before this. The church in Rome was already established. And if Petoli is the major port of entry to Rome, then as the, the believers who left Pentecost, and in the 20 plus years since, as they have gone to Rome for various reasons, they've stopped in Patoli as well. And they have shared the gospel there, and a church has established. It is a reminder to us that God's word was not limited to the works of Paul. That unknown people just living their lives, just traveling for business, were spreading God's word. And it was at work. It was accomplishing its purposes. Long before the famous Paul arrives in Putoli, some person whose name is lost to history was there first and set the stage for him so that there would be a place where he could stay, a place where he could recover his strength and be encouraged. We keep looking along here. In verse fifteen, we have this word. Um, this uh, talk about them coming out to meet. Um, sorry, can't find. Oh, there we go. And the brothers there uh, in Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns. What a name for a, a village! Three taverns. Really? You want to? You know, I lived in Three Taverns, Italy. You know. Kind of an interesting name. But it is a little village along the way there. And the people have come out. That word meeting there is the Greek word uh, 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 apentesis, apentesis. um, And it really gives us a, a, a sense of what's going on. This idea of this meeting, this appentasis, It's when a dignitary was coming to town, the, the, when, a, when a celebrity was coming to your town, the local dignitaries would go out and greet them. Greet them outside of the city. To send them away? To send them out? No. To turn around with them and come right back into the city and to make a big show of it, a big parade of it. We see this with the triumphal entry of Jesus. His followers in Jerusalem rush out to meet him and they make a big show of his entry into Jerusalem. An appentasis, a meeting with him. We see this happening here with Paul. We know this happened with uh, uh, dignitaries, uh, politicians, military leaders in the ancient world. And it does, by the way, give us some insight into where, where else do we see this word? Well, we see it in First Thessalonians 4.17. Appentasis, meet him in the air. We must not think of that as Christians going to, to meet Jesus and then Jesus turning around and heading back to heaven. But rather, we turn around, those who are alive, will meet him in the air and turn around and come with him. The final dignitary, the all-time greatest dignitary, the most important king to ever enter any place, will come back with an entourage befitting his glory. And he will enter in this earth for the final time to rule over it directly and personally for the remainder of eternity. This gives us some insight into understanding that passage. Word clearly has gotten to Rome as Paul has uh, uh, stopped in each city to rest, as we hear the account of him spending some time in these different cities. Somebody has gone on ahead to Rome and told the Christians, the Apostle Paul is on his way. That guy who wrote that letter that we love so much, he just a few miles down the road, and they've gone out to meet him. And we see that their willingness to go and to meet him is an encouragement to Paul. He thanks God for it. You say, well, oh, shouldn't if he just eschewed, oh, no, the humility, no, no, you guys shouldn't come. I mean, I don't think Paul was going, oh, look how great I am, you all came. He just thanked the Lord, that, he, that the reminder that there were believers. This trip has been a hard one. It has been arduous. The final walking from Petoli up to Rome is, is 130 miles of pretty arduous highway. And this is encouragement to Paul. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me that you have already laid the foundation. You have already put in place the people that I need to be a part of here. We see something interesting happen, though, too. So what happens here? All these Christians come to the, uh, to the Apian uh, Way in the three taverns, and they come and they meet Paul. So he knows that he's known about already in Rome. So what does he do? He assumes that the Jews in Rome must already know about him. And he decides to launch a preemptive defense of himself. And so he gathers the Jews together in his usual way. By this point in the book of Acts, we're familiar with this. Paul goes into the synagogue And he says, hey, I am a Pharisee, I am trained under Gamaliel, I would like to bring a word to your congregation, and they say, of course, our brother Jew, you are welcome to speak. On this occasion, because of his being a prisoner, he invites them to come to his place, he's under house arrest, and they come, and preemptively he launches, all these Christians came out and met him, they knew he was coming, they've already heard about him. So clearly the Jews have also. And he says, listen, I know what you're thinking. You've already prejudged me. You've heard all this bad stuff said about me, but let me tell you it ain't true. And he recounts the the story of his trials and how he was judged to be innocent. (laughs) It's funny how it works out, isn't it? They say, we had not heard anything about you. No letter had come. Nobody said anything bad about you. We did not even know who you are. You know that experience? Mom calls you in, got a stern face, and you say, "Mom, let me explain." I was hungry and the cookies were the quickest thing. And she says, "What about cookies? I don't think about cookies." What do you I was upset about something. Oh, you're like, "Oh, if I just kept my mouth shut." That's kind of what just happens to Paul right here. He goes on the defensive and he hadn't really needed to. And yet, what does he do? He does what he's done throughout his ministry. What a great reminder to us of the faithfulness of just presenting the word of God. Just just telling God's word. And you'd say, well, Paul, at this point, shouldn't he be giving up on this? This has gotten him in no end of trouble. He is where he is today, the shipwreck, all of these things, were because of what he did right here, because of this. Has he not learned his lesson? And he says, I've learned my lesson that this is the only way to share the gospel effectively to my brother Jews. They must hear God. And so he sits down with them, and we're told that he opens up Moses and the prophets. He he, he turns to Isaiah and he says, listen, the Messiah must be born of a virgin and must suffer. Both of these were true of Jesus of Nazareth. Check. Check. He opens up the book of Micah and he says, the Messiah must come out of Bethlehem. This was true of Jesus of Nazareth. Check. And he opens up Hosea and says, listen, the prophet foretold that out of Egypt I would bring my son. And this happened with Jesus of Nazareth. And he turns to Zechariah and says, listen, the promised one is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey with great fanfare. And that happened with Jesus of Nazareth. And he points to the prophecies of Moses and says, listen, the cursed one is going to die by hanging on a tree. And that happened with Jesus of Nazareth. And he turns to the Psalms and says, but his body will not see decay. And that happened with Jesus of Nazareth. He arose. And he turns to Daniel and says, look, the one like the Son of Man is going to receive all glory and honor before the throne of the Ancient of Days. And that has happened. We saw Jesus go to heaven. And he is convincing these people that Jesus of Nazareth is the one promised something interesting then happens the the usual I don't I'm a little it's a little interesting that Paul responds so differently here than he did in other places usual account some believe many disbelieve and then Luke uh, uh, says something I record something interesting that that Paul quotes from Isaiah, uh, 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 this passage about how these people are going to harden their hearts, how they will not see because their eyes are blinded, how they will not hear because their ears are deaf. And he says, listen, this is it. I'm done with the Jews. And I'm going to the Gentiles. Is this a sign that we should not share with Jews, we should not minister to Jews, we should not offer God's word to them, share the gospel with them, That we, does this justify uh, anti-Semitism and, and hatred for Jews, as some have argued? It's hard to imagine that. For it is Paul himself writing to the church in Rome, in chapter 11, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he answers, by no means. God has not rejected his people. Why would we? And a few verses later, in that same passage, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did, in other words, did God let them disbelieve just to prove a point? Just to make them look bad? Did they stumble just so that they might fall? And again, he says, By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul says, no. The gospel has come to Gentiles because the Jews have rejected it. But it will only be better if the Jews come. Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why did Paul gloat about being an apostle to the Gentiles? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You know the account, you remember, maybe it happened to you. If you're not going to practice the clarinet, then I'm going to sell it to some little kid who will. For me, it was my bicycle. I was learning to ride. I rode into the neighbor's rose bush. The roses weren't the problem. The thorns were. And for weeks, I wouldn't get back on my bike. And my dad finally pulled that one out and said, if you're not going to ride your bike, I'm going to give it to some child who will. And the idea that some other kid would ride my bike motivated me to get back on it. And Paul is saying, that's what God is doing with Jews. He has not set them aside for all eternity. But rather, I'm going to go take this wonderful good news to Gentiles, and one day God is going to use it to spur the Jews onto salvation also. We see then that Paul has arrived at the end of his journey, and he's now in Rome, the end of the earth. You say, well, wait a second, Scott, that's not the end of the earth. Even by ancient geography standards, it was the middle of the world. I mean, Rome was kind of the center and the empire around it. But from a Jewish perspective, when the word was given back at the beginning of the book of Acts that I'm going to send you into Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, the end of the earth in a Jewish mind was Rome. Not because they were unaware that there were lands west of Rome, Paul knew about Spain. In fact, he leaves here and goes to Spain. Paul knew about Britain. The educated Jews knew that this wasn't the geographic end of the earth, but it was the moral end of the earth. It was the place where darkness reigned on earth. It was the place where paganism was strongest, where immorality was celebrated. It was the end of the earth it is when Peter writes his first epistle from Rome. He sends it at the close, and 1 Peter 5, I think it's verse 13, he says, he writes, from Babylon. That's what Jews thought of Rome, that it rivaled Babylon in its wickedness. He has arrived at the end of the earth. The gospel is now in the very place where darkness was centered. and We know what happens. Do the gates of hell withstand the assault of these few Christians here? It doesn't. God would chip away at the edifice of paganism and darkness. And through the faithfulness of his people, they would eventually overcome. A couple of hundred years later, there would be an emperor who would himself become a Christian. Eventually, Rome became not the hub of darkness, but the center of Christianity. To the end of the earth. Now to the end of the work. Take a look at Acts chapter 29. Should be there, shouldn't it? The book feels decidedly unfinished, doesn't it? What happens? So much is left hanging. At a minimum, we kind of... You know the the true life movies, these movies based on true stories... And you get to the end of the movie, and they start to show you pictures of the real person rather than the actor and actress, and then they have a little clip about what happened in their life. You kind of expect that, at least that much, right? You expect to see, so all this whole time through the book of Acts, through this whole movie, uh, George Clooney has been playing the, the role of Paul, and now we see that the real Paul is, you know, five foot tall, bald, hunched over, half blind. We see that clip of him. And uh, it scrolls up and says, and Paul went on to, uh, to minister in Spain for a couple of years, Then he returned to Crete and Ephesus and Colossus and blah, 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 et etc. Et, et cetera, And uh, Luke uh, went back to his hometown of Philippi, became an elder in the church, and lived out his days doing plastic surgery on middle-aged Mediterranean uh, soccer moms. You know, uh, whatever the account would be, you expect some closure. What about Thomas going to India? Come on, I'd like to know more about that. What happens to Peter? What about John in Asia? Nothing. What's going on? Some people have proposed that the end of the book of Acts has been lost. That, that there was more. That it did tell us more. Some have even said that Luke intended a third volume. His gospel being volume one, what we have being volume two, and a third volume. So if we lost a part of the word of God? Is that why this is left hanging? Because we don't have God's word well, I jokingly told you to look at Acts chapter 29, but I'd like you to really look now at Acts 28, verse 29. Acts 28, verse 29. Do you notice that it's not there? What's going on? Apparently we can lose the word of God. Verse 29 is missing. What's happening? Well, something interesting has happened over the centuries. As Human beings have copied the word of God. They have felt the need to add to what the Holy Spirit had to say. And they have added things in throughout the centuries. And later, when the verses got added, so there was another verse there. And when the verses were added about 500 years ago, they numbered verse 29. But then as archaeology began to uncover more earlier copies of the Bible we began to realize that there were additions. The earliest copies all agree that verse 29 is not there. And so they took it out, but in order to keep consistency, they left the, number, the, the, the numeration the way it is. My point is this. There is a lot of history, a lot of evidence, very common in the book of Acts, very common in the gospel of Mark, that the Holy Spirit has allowed human beings to, to Add to his word to obfuscate it through their own thoughts through the ideas they thought he should have said but all the archaeology all the history all the scholarship all the study not one time has anything been turned up to suggest that we've lost any part of the word of God it has never happened the way my seminary professor put it was this It's not that we don't have 100% of God's word. The problem is we have 105% of God's word. And we've got to peel back the additions of humanity to get to what the Holy Spirit actually said. Why verse 29 is gone. I'm saying all of this to say this. We have not lost chapter 29. This is how the book is supposed to end. Because the story doesn't end. In one sense, it does conclude, go back to Acts chapter 1, flip back to the very beginning of the book of Acts, and look at the very first um, chapter, look at verse 8, and be reminded of what we were told this was all about. Verse 8 is the table, chapter 1, verse 8 is the table of contents for the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In one sense, Luke has told the story he said he was going to tell. He records this here, and he says, I'm going to give you the account of this happening. Jesus promised that they would go to the end of the earth. They're now at the end of the earth. I'm done. I told you what I told you. I would tell you. In another sense, some have pointed out that Theophilus, verse 1 of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, if you go back to Luke's prologue, remember in Luke's gospel, he refers to him as Most Excellent Theophilus. That title Most Excellent occurs just three times in the scriptures. In Luke 1.3 of Theophilus, in Acts uh, uh, chapter uh, uh, 24 of uh, Felix, and in Acts chapter 26 of Festus. In other words, it's a title used for government officials. And some have said, Theophilus doesn't need any more because he was there in Rome. He was a government official. This brings Theophilus up to date. He knows the rest of the story. That may be true. But you know what? Here's the real key. Look at Acts 1.1. Look at Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have uh, the Gospel of Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What is the clear implication that Luke wants Theophilus and us to hear? That this is the ongoing work and teaching of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke talks about what Jesus began to do and to teach. This is what he continues to do and to teach. This is the continuation of the work of Jesus. And how do you bring that story to a close? You see, if the gospel wrapped up the details of Peter's ministry, or if it wrapped up the details of Paul's ministry, the gospel, I just said gospel, the book of Acts, we could be tempted to say that it was about Peter and Paul. But clearly it's not about Peter and Paul. For if it is, it's horribly told. It is a story about the gospel. And that story hasn't ended. That work is not over. It continues even into our day. We are part of Acts chapter 29. We are part of the continuation of this story. And it's a reminder to us That the story of the gospel, the story of the work of Jesus, is an ongoing tale. It began before us and it will continue long after us unless the Lord comes sooner. It is a continuing story. Have you thought about your place in it? Have you considered where you belong in that tale? where you belong in that account? Have you thought about what it is that you're uh, putting your efforts toward, your money toward, your time toward, the best thoughts of your day toward? What are you doing in hopes of being remembered? We all want our story to go on and to continue. But have you ever really thought about what the odds of that are? Very few of us are going to be George Washington, and be remembered by history. And so, what happens? We people get those who get spurred on to wanting to be remembered, wanting that desire to not be to not be lost in anonymity and obscurity. They'll do crazy things. You know, this is what motivates most mass murderers: is this desire to be remembered, to be known. How does that work out? By the way, we don't we remember the events. We remember Columbine. We I can't remember the name of the shooter. Isn't that interesting? Even their sick, perverted attempt to be remembered in history gets lost. Think about even your own family. Each of us has two parents. Each of them have two parents, so we have four grandparents. Each of them had two parents, so we have eight great-grandparents. let's just stop there for a moment. How much do you remember about your great-grandparents? Of the eight great-grandparents that I have, I can remember two of them. Never knew the other six. Can't even tell you their names. The two that I can remember, you know how I remember them? As old. Doing nothing. Sitting in an overheated room in a recliner. And it was Christmas time and I was at my grandparents' so I had to walk across the the way and say hi to my great-grandparents. Now, is that the reality of their lives? No. No. But it is how their own family remembers them, isn't it? Go back the generation before that to the great great grandparents. Now there are 16 of them on my side, another 16 on Becky's side, 32 great great grandparents just three generations ago. And you know what? We can remember one of those 32. You know why? Because he happened to carry this sword it. He happened to carry this sword in the Civil War. And because he carried this sword and because it came down through the family and I got it, we stumbled across a picture of him once upon a time. And so a picture that probably would have been one we didn't much care about or even know who it was, we kept. Because, well, it's, you know, great-great-grandpa Laban who carried this sword. The other 31 great-great-grandparents aren't even remembered by their own descendants, let alone the rest of history. And his memory exists and continues simply because of an enduring object he carried. Your lives are limited. The odds that they're going to be remembered in history are slim. So what makes it worth living? This is, by the way, the great question of human life. This is what motivates philosophers, what troubles those who think deeply on these things. This is what causes the pursuit of all manner of pleasure for pleasure's sake. Because the question comes back, what is my life about? It can be about a story that doesn't end. Your life can be part of a tale it doesn't include. Your life can have a meaning that transcends its own time and place. It starts by believing that the Jesus Paul is preaching really is the promise one of God. That he really did fulfill all the prophecies to which Paul alludes here. That he really did come and pay the price for your sin and for mine. And in believing that, knowing that he is going to continue to live on because having done that, God has lifted him to the eternal throne and put him on the throne of his father David so that he is the king who reigns forever. And you can be part of that eternal story. Acts ends. The story does not. The work continues. Let it continue in us today. Let us continue to be a part of that everlasting good news. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work here on the earth and for its continuation through the book of Acts. Lord, we ask that you would continue it in us today. Let us see ourselves in Acts chapter 29. Let us see ourselves as a part of the continuing work that you are doing here on this earth. Let us give our efforts and our energy and our intellect to that work. Knowing that while our names will fade, your work will not. Your gospel endures. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And the only hope we have of doing anything meaningful is to be a part of that. Thank you for the faith that you have given us to enter into that kingdom now give us the boldness that we read of in the final verse of acts to press on without hindrance and continue the work you have been doing are doing and will continue to do we pray this in your precious name amen